Hello again, and a warm welcome to this special series of the Hive podcast, featuring the interviews from my new book, Business Unusual, Values, Uncertainty, and the Psychology of Brand Resilience. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some very special guests as we explore the ideas transforming the world of business, brands, and beyond. For more information and resources on today's episode, please visit natalinahai.com forward slash the Hive podcast. And for more information around the book, please visit businessunusualthebook.com. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Throughout this season, we've been hearing from people whose ideas are transforming the way we work, rest and play. One thing we've looked at is how businesses can be more pioneering, inviting and inclusive. And the past two years have shown us that we have the opportunity to redefine how work works for everyone. That's why I am thrilled to tell you about Forward, a one-day digital summit powered by Plio. Plio is a business spending solution, but it's not just about expenses, receipts and invoices for them. They also have a unique vision to make everyone feel valued at work. That's just one of the topics I'm excited to be exploring at Forward, which I'm very pleased to say I will be hosting. Join me online on December the 9th for stimulating conversations and debates with founders and leaders from companies like Airbnb, Netflix, Spotify and Zendesk. Plus, keynotes from the likes of Kim Scott, the best-selling author of Radical Candor. The world of work is evolving. Don't get left behind. Get your free ticket for Forward today at plio.io forward slash en forward slash forward. That's plio.io forward slash en forward slash forward. I look forward to seeing you there. Today, I speak with another friend of the podcast, Perry Timms, an international and two times TEDx speaker, advisor, and award winning writer on the future of work, HR, and learning. Founder of PTHR, a micro consulting venture in its ninth year of operation with the ambition to shape better business for a better world, Perry's work in progressive thinking in HR and the workplace of the future was recognized by his inclusion on HR Magazine's HR's most influential thinkers list for 2017 where he also placed fifth most influential in 2018. The author of two books, Perry's first volume, Transformational HR, was an Amazon.com top 30 HR seller shortly after its release. And due to popular demand and the effects of the pandemic, the second revised edition came out earlier this year to wide acclaim. His second book, The Energized Workplace, explores human energy and organization design and was published in April 2020. Perry serves as adjunct faculty at Ashridge Executive Education and Holt International Business School and is a visiting fellow at Sheffield Hallam University. He is also the world's only World Blue Certified Freedom at Work consultant and coach, and he currently leads the London chapter of Responsive Org. Perry, one of my favourite people. Thank you so much for joining me in conversation. Well, that's nice. You're one of my favourites, so it's uh, back (laughs) at you. But yeah, thank you. I'd like to dive in by asking what I usually ask my guests, which is, from your perspective, what do you think is happening in the global human psyche right now? Wow. So um, separation, confusion, uh, and people, I think, are a little bit lost about a number of different things, like the reason they're here, who they ally with, Mm. uh, who's got the answers, and uh, that the world is facing some pretty significant issues and problems. Um, And whilst that sounds quite doomy and gloomy, and there's a lot of good within it, I think that's the overriding sense that I think a lot of people have carried around with them for a while and is now probably even heavier Mm, I think you're right and I think obviously I'm I'm asking this now and we're in December at the end of 2020 and this episode's going to be coming out with the launch of the book in September of 2021 so if I were to ask you what you might hope would be happening in that period in the human psyche (laughs) what, what would what would be your response 
Well, I think we've had a shock to the system and it's caused a lot of evaluation and re-evaluation. So my hope is that as we start to restore a sense of order and confidence in the future, which at the moment is obviously lacking what with a new virulent stream and then the vaccination programme being rolled out and some political changes across in the US, um, we're probably not quite daring to believe that we could emerge from this with, with strength and conviction and, and new hope. But by September, I'm hoping we'll have had at least a couple of months where we've started to see our reaction to this and I I never use the phrase new normal because it's horrible but (laughs) the reality and the future trajectory I suppose would start to become a lot clearer by then financial hardship notwithstanding Mm. um, I think we'll start to see what we're what we're hoping to come out of this which is a renewed sense of connectedness togetherness um, and uh, I guess forging ahead more to create the solutions to the problems that are still there and perhaps have been there pre-pandemic and are now newly cast post-pandemic. So um, I'm expecting the autumn of 2021 to have a little bit of an uptick in optimism. Mm. You are actually one of the most passionate and, dare I say, unorthodox leaders in the world of HR. And I imagine that with all the extraordinary disruptions that businesses have been facing, your skills must be in high demand. I wonder, from your perspective in your work and with your experience, how you conceive of resilience and what qualities you believe businesses need in order to thrive in the face of uncertainty? So I guess I'll start with a little bit of a sort of an overarch, really, that I think resilience has probably taken on a new meaning since the pandemic and will do post-pandemic, which I'm really glad about because I think up to now, resilience has actually become a bit of a cliche. I think there are lots of people who are pointing to it and they're adopting the, well, if you can't stand the heat, get out of the kitchen type approach. And I don't think that's fair. So I think we've transferred a good spirit in resilience onto people and say, if you can't manage yourself, then there must be something weak in you. But I don't think that's right. So I think mm. it's it's been distorted. And I think actually, bizarrely, this pandemic will reset it. So I think even people who have described themselves as supremely resilient have been tested to the absolute hilt on this one. So I think we have a different view on it. So that's good. I like that it's kind of being reinvented for that reason. But how do I conceive it? Then I think it's about not crumbling when things get tough. And being able to find reserves in energy, spirit, cognitive capability, imagination, decision making, graft, application, focus and ultimately resolve. Mm. Because I think resilience sometimes comes from resolving the fact that you can or can't influence something if it's beyond your control, but you can make a start or you can do things nearer to you. So I think some of it is about knowing where to deploy your energy and your thoughts um, and then being able to shift through the gears Mm. in order to make that happen. Um, If you're not particularly resilient, you'll always be in first gear, whether you're going uphill or not, and that just revs the engine too high and ultimately it will force a collapse. So, So I think it's how you manage that flow and those those things that you have at your disposal but that you need to assemble uniquely for you and the circumstance. Mm. I think that rhythm is is resilience in the way I'd like to think I conceive it and use it. I like this idea of personal resilience and not being stuck in first gear. Also, it connects with our ability to contribute to a larger system of resilience. And here I'd like to weave in the fact that you lead the London chapter of Responsive Org, which is an organisation that seeks to create a fundamental shift in the way that we work and organise in the 21st century. With a view to this sort of thread of resilience, can you tell us a bit about the vision that it holds and maybe what shifts we need to help foster? Mm. So I think the term Responsive Org came out some time ago, bizarrely in in and around the realms of Yammer and Microsoft in the early days of social networks. But I think it's come to mean something beyond simply a networked and platform-based connected force of people. And I think a resilient organisation is now talked about in the same realms as perhaps Peter Senge's MIT work for a learning organisation. I think the two are sort of intertwined really. So a resilient organisation I think is agile, responsive, it's tuned in, it does learn, it has adjacent opportunities, it has white margins to work in. It's essentially not a really stuck and rigid and and almost caustic organisation. So it's softer, pliable, all those kinds of things, yet still has 
strength and conviction and and determination so talking about it as a human spirit i guess we can we can use those kinds of factors so uh, so i guess firstly what people need to do is is find that spirit in that thing so the organization a brand and structure and legalities has a spirit and an essence so for example if you work for the nhs there's a spirit there of mm. care and so on and so forth so loads of people attached to that more than they do the platitudes on the wall about whatever it is the nhs's mission at that time is so find the essence and the spirit connect to that i think a resilience organization then needs to create excitement in people um, and so that's not some kind of positive way of dressing up a challenge but it's about enabling people to feel really risen to the energy that's needed to tackle complexity and uncertainty so instead of just looking at it with fear we look at it with excitement about the challenge and the opportunity that lies within that And then I think there's something about how we then sort of loop that back into personal growth, personal satisfaction, Mm. personal fulfilment. So I think those three elements, the essence of it, the excitement you can create about the challenges, and then the loop back into what does this help me become as a human being? I think those are the three essential parts of a responsive organisation. I love this looping back into the personal purpose different yeah. aspects and also conceiving of a business as something which has some kind of vital essence to it yeah i'm wondering in terms of the, the perspective of changing behaviors that we've seen whether it's the consumer behaviors that were a result of the pandemic's impacts or the behaviors that already begin to shift prior to the pandemic i've seen some really fascinating studies suggesting that we're undergoing some interesting shifts in what we value from the consumer perspective to our individual lives, to our roles as employees and as business leaders. And some of these I wanted to kind of float to you to get your take on it. So early on in 2020, Kantar did a COVID barometer and they found that 25 to 34 year olds, so the millennial group, and also 18 to 24, which is Gen Z, held brands to higher account compared to other generations. And they wanted them to be more proactive with society and its citizens. There was another study that found that nearly 40% of millennials would accept one job offer over another due to a company's environmental credentials. And another third insight was that nearly half of this group have also spoken up publicly in support or criticism of their employees' actions when it comes to key societal issues. And of course, during the pandemic, we saw a lot more amplification of and focus on Black Lives Matter movements and issues around inclusion, etc. And so given all of these fairly interesting and fundamental shifts that we're observing, if we knit it back into those three elements that you described, how do you think these relate? Do you think we are actually starting to see some sort of awakening where we're wanting to connect our individual sense of purpose with the essence of companies, with the people that employ us and how we do business? I do have to be careful when I answer this because I'm so close to a lot of businesses that are very conscious and that are very sort of purpose-led and, and oriented towards those things that I'm, I might be, you know, part of the kind of echo chamber, I guess you'd say, of that <laughs> when there are lots and lots that aren't. But in answer to your question genuinely, putting that aside, so that's a known bias and I'm now reflecting on it more widely. Yes, I think there is an awakening gently starting to emerge. So the Business Roundtable's declaration in 2019 that it was shareholder value, no, it's stakeholder value, I think was pretty symbolic. And some might say, yeah, but nothing's changed since then. And it's like it takes a while for this stuff to permeate through into the system to then start to shift how people's perspectives are. But I've spoken to clients recently in finance, retail, science, banking, local government, and they're all talking about the kind of things that we're talking about today. And they wouldn't have been even a year ago because I think they've recognised how important it is in holding the attention and the focus and the kind of commitment of their people. And that's not some bizarre recruitment tactic, not at all. It's about performance. It's about collective innovation I suppose and it's ultimately about survival so I think they're starting to realise with the advent of let's say challenger banks and online retailers and you know all sorts of other things that there are 
entities out there with a different spirit that are capturing not just attention but also business and are looking at you know sustainable ways of operating and they are all the focal point of of those companies people talk about as heroes and desired employer contracts so i think it's shifting through both competition and realization and you're right about the Kantar research that has identified that group of people in that age category as wanting that as almost like a default and i think there are a lot of career transitioners in their 40s and 50s that are also saying I've had enough Mm. for working for the soulless entity and I want something that gives me a greater sense of fulfillment for those that follow me so I think it's rippled out even beyond the the age brackets you're talking about now that gives me heart because they're potentially already in leadership roles and so they can recalibrate how leadership is immediately and then the next generation come along and take over those roles and they're already there Mm. so it's a sort of an accelerating upward spiral for a change so yeah that sounds optimistic and it sounds perhaps a little bit idealistic still but I'm (laughs) hearing it and seeing it and picking it up so yeah I, I think the research is hitting on an important element that business is also for good as well as for profit Mm. and viability. Yeah. And I wonder there, in terms of where these changes are coming from, as you mentioned, people who are also in their 40s and 50s, it's not just the younger generations who have a deep desire for this. I think it's just potentially more a question of a much keener, sharper awareness that the crises that we face, including the environment, including the economic systems, these are all so closely interlinked. Got it. And that for younger people, these are going to be impacts which they face within their lifetimes. And yep. maybe that kind of tangibility of the situation creates more of a motivation to act now. I agree. And so I wonder then, what do you feel are some of the biggest changes that you're witnessing within the culture and maybe connected with the leadership of organisations? Yeah. And I think the pandemic has accelerated some of this. So leadership and those transitional um, age groups we talked about just now are, I think, now starting to see that forced change has enabled um, a wider set of options. So, for example, there are a lot of people who are worried about environmental pollution who had to commute for their work Mm. and now don't have to because of what's happened they're like right I've got a choice now I am not going to be a pollutant so they're starting to create almost like an individual Paris agreement they're saying I'm going to opt out of this because I can that wouldn't have been possible without a pandemic which is bizarre Mm. but but I think that's that's got the attention now of leaders who are like saying oh okay so I can offload some expensive real estate I can start to think about people working more flexibly in a way that actually gives me potentially some down to sundown coverage on things um, that they will be more responsive to changes in the dynamic of the work we ask them to do what's not to like about that Mm. so I think the enlightened ones whether they are you know ethically on the green agenda are now starting to come into tactical decisions and strategies that will by nature help the green agenda Mm. Um, so yeah so I think there's this kind of shift going on in leaders in decisions in setting strategies and tempos and that's got to be then translated through so that everybody kind of applies it in organizations it starts to infiltrate perhaps even community and society structures Mm. so if you don't have to commute and be almost like invisible in your community you can now stay around and perhaps be more visible in your community and start a grassroots movement because you're around more i think all those things are going to snowball out from not having to be vacant from your domicile Mm. and and just present in your employ when the two are combined i think good things can come around communities and localization that sounds super exciting I know, I love thought of it too. <laughs> but it didn't occur to me either. It didn't occur to me. I was quite happy to just jump on trains and planes and yeah. go where the work was. Now I don't want to do it. And therefore I'm thinking, oh, that gives me more space around me to do things in the proximity of where I live. So yeah, mm. even I've started to shift that. It's an interesting one because, um, you know, you and I have both shared stages in various countries and there is a desire to, to want to be in person in front of people and and connecting on a more tangible basis. It'd be lovely if we could be having this conversation over a cup of tea in the same room together. But of course, we're having to do the next best thing, which is have this conversation remotely. And so there is kind of that balancing act of taking the best of what we have and what technology has to offer and aligning that Mm. with the way in which we want to live so we can be more physically present to our communities. And then also finding ways to connect with the people that we work with, with the culture of the organisation. And so here I'd like to to ask you a bit about your second book that came out in April 2020 called The Energised Workplace, which explores human energy and organisation design. And I'm curious, with 
remote work being a reality for so many of us in various different forms, how do you believe we might bridge the virtual gap and find ways to thrive and create energy and create some kind of workplace, virtual or otherwise, yeah. given that we are now more dispersed? Totally right, yeah. And, and, and it's a challenge. So when I wrote that book, the workplace was still the focal point of it. And then, of course, as it was mm. released, then the workplace became this dispersed thing. Uh, and so I, I did question the relevance <laughs> of it. But actually, a lot of people have said since that actually it is more relevant because energy is something we are now acutely mm. aware of, whereas before we were only marginally aware of it, bizarrely. So I think there's got to be some clever thinking in in how we can stimulate the connections that people have um, in person through screen to screen type stuff um, and I'll give you a really relevant example of something I'm just about to enter into which is a virtual office mm. so we we are a remote team anyway there's eight of us across different time zones and places in the world but um, we've always acknowledged the fact that we'll connect through zoom and slack and so on but it's still not quite as good but we've now got a place a virtual place where we can log into we have a desk we sit at it we connect outside to the world we connect internally through screens of course but it feels like we're there and so we're going to conduct a bit of a social experiment to see if that feels better than the dispersed way we were working before i think it will and then that leads me on to the second part of that equation which is people who used to work together in a physical place and don't do so so much is that an effective compromise for the one or two or ten days a month that they are in physical mm. proximity with people but they're virtually connected and can still chat and do all the sort of you know water cooler moments which i think is rubbish anyway but you know <laughs> those kind of things serendipitous innovation if you want to call it that um and connections and have a chat about the fact that they're thinking about getting a dog and all that stuff because <laughs> i think the social fabric of the workplace has been slightly romanticized and overplayed mm. But I'm not denying that it is important and I think something needs to bridge the gap between sat in your own space and having people on your team you need to trust and believe in and help. Yeah, so the virtual space I think will create something. Local working hubs, I think, uh, are going to come into prominence so you can still stay local but you can also then mingle with people who perhaps work for different companies but you can strike up relationships with um, and then still have some time with your team a bit like um, the guys at Automatic do four times a year they travel from wherever spend some time together bond and then they go back to their dispersed way so i think stowe boyd puts it that um off-sites have now become on-sites mm. i think that's how it will go mm. i like the idea of off-sites becoming on-sites i'm also thinking as you describe the possibility for having kind of high quality contact with your teams that maybe if yeah. you choose to spend specific time together physically present with one another and we design those experiences intentionally yeah. then there's also the yeah. space for engaging in much more meaningful connection and dialogue um, and then it becomes something which is rich and qualitatively different yeah. to the everyday humdrum office life i'd so, agree with that yeah um, kind of like a couple of my friends moved away from barcelona and they they have bought this gorgeous place in uh, Menorca and it has lots of land and it's beautiful and they don't see their friends as much but they did say you know now that we're on the island when people do come and visit we're there together for a week we get to spend much more time immersed in one another's company and it really has heightened the quality and the depth of the relationship and I see echoes between that on an individual basis and what might happen with organisations what do you think? Yeah I can too mm. I think we have to accept that there are adjustments that we wouldn't naturally um, sort of make but are forced upon us however we still have a choice about how we make them enriching and deep and meaningful isn't in the way you described but I've been able to keep in touch with a lot more people through the pandemic than I used to whilst I haven't seen some people in physical proximity um, but that feels like I've chosen to do that rather than just accidentally come across a load of people and now I like that deliberateness because mm. you use that word and I like it that it's like I can go deep with who I want to not just who happens to be around I think that's a lovely thing we should hold on to mm. yeah agreed I wonder with so many people adapting to this kind of remote work do you think it's had an impact on structural changes within organizations so I'm thinking here maybe about the hierarchies that were present any kind of silos or ways in which people lead mm. I do, <laughs> because there are all, all sorts of artefacts and symbols of hierarchical power, presence and so on 
in the physical workspace that are completely flattened by the virtual workspace. So, yeah, so I think there's something that we've seen uh, a levelling in some respects of um, access. You know, a leader is just another face on the Zoom block and in gallery mode. And so, yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that we've taken the round table spirit almost of nobody's at the apex. That's quite cool. I quite like that. And I'm, again, drawn to non-hierarchical setups, partly because I can see the distortion it sometimes has on people when they get given power and unbridled accessibility to certain things so i quite like the the equalizing effect of us all being in it together yeah. so those things have quite profoundly um, helped us reimagine hang on what is this all about and and i do think there's a ripple effect out that people will say well actually how we had it before was based on certain rules that are no longer around so therefore can we rethink how how things happen so I hope we'll see much more of those team of teams type spirit where people forge together kind of voluntarily to solve a problem and are quite happy to then dismantle and forge ahead with another group of people on a different problem and think nothing about it. Um, and, and that means the hierarchical control of that is is less needed mm. and therefore it adds less value. <laughs> so therefore, I think that will naturally diminish. So I don't think we'll see a hierarchical, you know, kind of erasure uh, overnight so quickly. But I think we'll see the gradual, um, uh, I guess, sort of integration of people who've got certain skills and elements and expertise who will hold leading roles situationally, but then that won't always be the case that they'll be dominant over a group of people. Mm. And I think that'll be quite nice. There'll be people who'll naturally emerge as kind of coaches and duty of care kind of people. Um, They'll have their followers and their sort of clan, I suppose. And then there'll be others who are technical geniuses who will be drafted in whenever it's needed, but who don't need a team. So I think we'll get over that. You've got to be a manager to get promoted. I think we'll mm. we'll probably start to see that diminish. And that's, again, I think a good thing because we've promoted experts into management roles often uh, at their detriment and their, those around them. So we might equalise some of the ills of the hierarchical forced nature through this more networked way of working. Mm. It also sounds to me as though there's a possibility here for changing the way that we value people's contributions. Yeah, I'd agree with that significantly because you're sort of not present in the sort of real world sense that you can high five everybody and have a big celebration. So you have to do it in a different way. So I think that means data becomes more important and a story to tell that can go across screens is more important. So I get the sense that in order to feel fulfilled and in order to show that you are working in a sort of flourishing way, your achievements will need to be much more valid and data validated uh, and therefore that's how we'll grab attention and get the right kind of kudos for the efforts and the um, outcomes that we've achieved so yeah i think the whole performance and assessment and celebration side of things um, needs a real good look at because i don't think it's the loudest voice and the one who plays the politicking game so much as data-led, achievement-based, outcome-oriented, success and sustainable impact. Yeah, I think that's the, the calling card of how we will prove our worth, merit and, uh, and sense of achievement. Do you think within that there's also the greater possibility for intentional collaboration as well? Yes, definitely, because I think it has to be. <laughs> so I think we have to think more wisely about how we bring the right people into the, um, I guess you'd say, sort of squad or team that we're assembling to look mm-hmm. at something and whether we need them there as the sort of binding force or whether we need them there situationally to add value in a specific area. So I think we will create much more of a, uh, I suppose, a fluid nature to our teams rather than just, you know, uh, bolting eight people together and just hoping it works. I think we'll be a lot more deliberate, intentional, and we'll know why people are there and they'll they'll want to step in and learn and, and challenge themselves so yeah i can see learning happening more in that and i can see much more uh, acutely well selected teams that will include diversity and uh, you know very different thinking as much as it will include experts and people who've got the stripes and the hours under their belt of running projects um, mm. because we'll have data and methods to do that and the construct digitally means we can yeah quite literally Um, go to all four corners if that's what we need to do rather than just those who sit around us yeah it's an interesting one this this 
possibility of hiring people based on their skill set from wherever in the globe has a sufficiently robust internet connection to be able to to allow people to work remotely. Um, Personally, I keep thinking what this will mean for where people end up physically locating themselves, things like tax implications and residence, etc., which is going to require a massive overhaul at some point. But um, from the perspective of what attracts people to work together, say it does create an equalisation of... Like a geographic equaliser, let's say, where people can apply to work with a company from wherever they may be, then it seems to me that um, if an organisation wants to attract the best talent, the best fitting talent, then one of the things that's going to be really attractive and that's going to help them to create a much more robust uh, ecosystem is going to be their ability to identify, articulate and then abide by a very clear set of values that will inform not only who it attracts, but how it relates to its employees, partners, customers, society, etc. How do you see values as working both in terms of internal stakeholders and employees? What What are your thoughts? I mean, that's quite a big question. I'm, I feel like I'm throwing you maybe 10 questions in there. Yeah, that's all right. But can you speak to values yeah. and, and its importance and how it works in terms of HR? <laughs> We've definitely seen a shift. It's it's okay. This is an area that I do think about a lot. So um, like you, mm. I sort of find myself getting sometimes lost in it. But, but generally, mm. the thrust has been to use values in a much more determinable way so i am seeing lots of people now recruit to those values so they're saying look the the way we will find the right people for us of whatever diverse origin is that there is a really strong alignment between what we stand for and what they stand for and i don't see anything wrong in that what i don't like though is where people know the power of values and they use them but they aren't really them (laughs) you know there's almost like a little veneer that's the word i'm looking for there's a veneer of values Mm. but it hides a multitude of sins that's where we've got to watch out for it now this is where i think values are underpinned or even influenced by principles so what i think we're starting to perhaps unravel is that values in themselves are great but sometimes we just need a set of principles to start with or to articulate Mm. them in a way that people go yes i believe in those principles and that principle and so sometimes we try and attach a value statement to sort of one word so we'll say stuff like you know honesty and it's like well you're not going to say you're dishonest are you (laughs) but if you have a principle of we'll talk truth to power and we will uh, want candid feedback at any given time we're safe a place that you can challenge and people start going ah now those principles i totally get so i think that's what we'll see i think values will still be perhaps an outward projection of something but i think the principles are going to be the crucial thing that helps you find develop retain deploy the people who are best for you and it is best for themselves because their principles are really strongly aligned to yours. So, yeah, I I think there are shifts now going away from, I suppose you'd say, glamorous or technical statements of intent and going to much more like we're principled in this way. So if that lines up with yours, then let's have a chat because you might have the skills and imagination that we're after. Mm, I love that idea of the values principle relationship. So mm. from my understanding of what you've just said, and please correct me if if I'm wrong, it sounds as though the values are kind of like an outward projection, a sense of higher order ideas and ideals that we might subscribe to. And the principles are perhaps more tangible, concrete guidelines or outcomes. You've got it perfectly. Mm-hmm. Exactly that. So for example, at PTHR, we have a number of principles and one of them is that we will be known for our um, difference and so we talk about democratic inclusive and kind leadership in service of the people that makes the organization viable Mm. that's a principle of ours so when people um, talk to us about leadership they know that's what we're there to help them do be more democratic inclusive and kind and so in terms of breaking those things down if you were to work with a company that said right well we've got values of let's say our sense of benevolence towards people you could say okay well I'm someone like you Perry who um, wants to support others and I want to be benevolent not just to humans but to other forms of life if that's the overarching value what might you suggest to a company a principle could be that sits within that domain of universalism and benevolence yeah so so i think it will manifest itself in things like their choice of supply partners and uh, material acquisition as in like you know where they get their 
um, parts from or their raw materials or whatever it might be. So you would be able to look along the line of how they've applied that and how they are safely going into contracts and looking at how they look after those people in that extended operation. So they're not personally liable for them, but they recognise that without those partners who are upholding high standards and they're ethical and they're, you know, they're not involved in um, slavery or child labour or any damaging environmental aspects and so on, you would you would look for those sort of things in that relationship. So, so I think that universalism would mean that you go beyond what you are contracted to do and you show a degree of connection and empathy and help and surety in that sort of way. So that's maybe one example. And then in the recruitment sort of um, uh, area. So how you present your company to the world, how you then go about people applying to come and work for you, how you make sure that they're, you're removed from bias and you're doing all the things that you would expect a, a, a universalism-based approach to be to be thinking about, cultural sensitivity and so on and so forth. So I think it manifests itself in the things you do as much as the declarations that you have. So I think that kind of transparency is what people, going back to your earlier conversation about the expectations, I think that's what people would want to do. They would want to be able to go, I kind of need to audit you first before I even think that you're the worthy company for me. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's a bit of a shift from how it was in the past where it was like people glad to have a job somewhere. I think we'll see a lot more clout and credibility on how people stand in those values through the actions, the deeds and the things they have contracted themselves to do. Mm. And in terms of the kind of connection between values and maybe one's ethics, what role... Do you think ethics plays in successful business? Oh, uh, so, I mean, yeah, it, it's almost like the honesty thing, mm. but it's got to mean something, isn't it? So let's start with what HR could do, which is the closest sort of professional discipline to, to that which I practice in. There is a role where it acts as almost like a steward or a voice of conscience to the organisation. So mm. if they are having high attrition because their toxic leadership is creating mental ill health with people, they don't just keep recruiting people they actually go back and go, hang on, what's the ethical breach here in how people are either deployed, supported or enabled in their work? And if they find it, then they they stand in the space and go, that's not humane, that's not good enough, that's got to change. And they'll have evidence to back it up. So I think, you know, ethics are great, but you've almost got to create a compelling case sometimes to stand in that ethical space to convince others who are less ethical Mm. that there is a problem to resolve and and how to do it. So I think it comes back also to the principles that I talked about there. Your principles can very strongly exemplify and mandate the ethics that you want to be part of. So if that is about, um, you know, child labour and slavery in your supply chain, if that is about digital data utilisation, whatever it might be, your declaration... Um, that comes from the principle is then ethically tested in where you go, what you do, who you rely on. Mm. And that, I think, has the sense that you can then stand in the space and go, right, we're as clean as we can be. We're as protective as we can be. And, And all those things, I think, give you the confidence to then go, yes, we are abiding by a set of ethics. Mm. We will always do the right thing by whatever it might be, people, planet, and so on. But I think increasingly that should become almost like the scorecard for businesses, not just what their market value is, but almost like an ethics index. Mm, mm. Um, I know just Capital.com try and do this by asking American consumers what they value in a company, and then they test that against a range of companies. But I think it needs to go beyond that. It's almost like who are the saints in the world and have an index published on those. And everybody ought to clamour to want to get on that list because that's where you show your integrity and that's where you hopefully can create sustainable businesses that are clearly doing the right thing all the time oh that's fascinating it's it's almost like an idea of ethical accountability that's it Mm. yeah Mm. i love this idea of the ethical index um and i will check out justcapital.com one of the issues that i think we face especially in this moment in time is on the one hand a desire to be more outspoken in the values that we uphold and to be more woke and to make sure that we're able to walk the talk and we're not just virtue signaling. So there's that desire to be doing and seem to be doing the right thing. 
And on the other hand, there's also what a lot of people talk about as cancel culture and no platforming and the desire to shut down people who are seen to be for good and for bad or whatever end of the spectrum, um, going against what is perceived as ethical or liberal or whatever it might be. And so I wonder, with these two extremes, wanting to be doing the right thing, but being limited in how much one can express or what one is able to express in what direction, in what way, it's quite tricky to find a path forward. How do you think, whether as brands or individuals, we can find ways to genuinely express our positions or concerns in a way that's truthful, in a way that's generative, and in the face of potentially being shut down? Um, now, whilst uh, you know the whole kind of fake news thing, cancel culture and everything else, has emerged perhaps out of the utter uh, manipulation of people's views using technology and media mouthpieces, the adverse reaction to that is that you, you, know, you counter it, and yeah, I can understand that. And then people say, well, but the facts don't matter because people don't listen to the facts. You know, they just listen to how they mm. feel. It's like, well, yeah. So what you have to do is you have to... Ca- counter the you know kind of outrageous declarations that are clearly um, aimed at manipulation with a softer but still very persuasive feelings-based and sentiment-led approach that says here's what's really going on here and here's how you prove what's really going on here you might want to go check that one out and just see what that's based on and so we I think we need to kind of intellectualize the argument a little bit more without alienating people who some might say don't have the intellect for it. Um, so in in that respect, then we can avoid treading too careful a line by saying, well, if we look a bit too liberal, then we'll just get all the right-wing mm. fascists and we'll just throw mud at us. And there's a bit of me that kind of goes, well, why should you worry about that when actually you're still doing the right thing? It might look like to some people it's on a particular agenda. I think we can counter it by making sure that we're always offering something to people wherever they are on that spectrum. So Mm. um, that could be data presented in an incredibly consumable way. It could be a story and a narrative that is an illustration of something that actually you know will cut across certain divides. So I I, I don't think it's as thin a line as some people realise it is. And if it is, we've got to thicken it to stop it from being an inhibiting factor of what we project and what we talk about and what we put out and what we ally with. So I really like those companies who are bold enough to just go, do you know what, that that racism stuff is just not something we're going to say is bad. We're going to say we're anti it mm. and we're going to say we're going to do things about it and we're going to stand with it. And, and, and so I, I admire people who do that because they almost don't need to prove that. Mm. But I think there are ways that you can still give people something when you're doing that. And I think if you're offering something to people, I don't mean goods, I just mean like stimulation, intellect, comfort, whatever it might be, then I think we're getting into the realms of how we navigate through that and, and, and avoid feeling like we're coming down too hard on either side. It's like, don't worry about the sides, create a thicker sensible ground between them and it doesn't matter how far right or left it feels like it's leaning people will be able to go oh I get that Mm. yeah because I think one of the things that I find really like kind of deeply saddening actually is that in the history of humanity there's always been you know a range of opinions a range of positions to be stewarded whether you're at the end of the spectrum that is high on openness to change or you're on the other end of the spectrum towards conservation you know this is a, a balance and a dance that is there for a reason and it makes me think of there's an amazing woman who I admire greatly her name is Krista Tippett and she runs the On Being podcast and project and she also engages in um, a project called Civil Conversations and Social Healing in which she aims to bring people together from all kinds of different perspectives moral perspectives perspectives, religious perspectives, ethical perspectives, liberal, conservative. And it's about creating a space in which we can have these sorts of generative conversations where these different positions that we steward can be seen for their value and their worth. And hopefully the things that are less useful about them can be set to the side for the purposes of having a constructive debate. And I wonder if that's really the the call for us now is how can we find ways back to one another to discuss what we can hold in tradition and what we can move forward and open and change. Completely agree. And so 
you know, often I, I check myself in and kind of think, do I just want everybody to be the same? And my answer when I think about it is no, I like difference and I think we need difference. Mm. Otherwise, we will get stuck in a Logan's Run type of scenario and I don't want anybody to have to have that. But I do think there's something about, but where is where is it dangerous? Mm. And I think we need to start thinking about how can we bring it back from the edge of danger into constructive debate, mm. exactly that. And I think at the moment it, there are too many things that are too dangerous, both to the planet, people, psychology, society, you name it. And, and so some of that danger, we need to kind of bring it back in so it's safer and we can explore the difference and go, OK, you, you can hold the view then that the Earth is flat. But actually, you know, we've brought you back from danger, which is where you are also allying it to all sorts of other things. And you you now don't believe they're true. And you can see the sense in certain other things. Um, Because I guess politically, we've gone through a number of different convulsions, I suppose Mm. you'd say, communism and then the fail of that and then capitalism and uh, some would argue the fail Mm. of that. So um, what next? Uh, And that is an interesting thing I think we ought to engage people in more. It's like, okay, don't worry about which side you're on. It's like, what's what's the next converging point then? Mm. Let's go towards that. Um, So, yeah, I, I agree with you that difference is absolutely something we need to understand more. And Krista's work sounds brilliant because it is more of the conversational approach i think we need to have so uh, you, you know meaning conference because you you came there once mm. and and i love the statement that, that's on the wall there every year which is conversations are the smallest unit of change i love that we just need lots more conversationalists around the world who can help people learn understand and get away from danger and get into difference meaning something yeah wonderful and that phrase conversations are the smallest unit of change is so poignant and poetic (laughs) yeah it's lovely isn't it yeah i totally abide by that yeah yeah given everything that we've touched upon in this conversation what do you think or hope the future will look like yeah um right so i i I think the construct of jobs is increasingly coming into question for the conversation we talked about earlier on but the conversation needs to adapt to a conversation about work work to be done not necessarily in the confine of a job so i think we'll see a little bit of you know disintermediation i guess and and perhaps a little bit of a vaporizing of the concept of a job and then we'll all start to think about work we do who for with and what i'm not saying it will be everybody freelance but i think the construct will be different so um, work will emerge out of that less about jobs and i think people will naturally inclined towards start middle and end projects on whatever it is they're doing so much more of the agile mentality of come together do something then go and forge into another thing so the fixed team i think is over and i think the future will see us working in much more of a sort of fluid way and there's a couple of things i think we will start to really value and some of that is about planetary regeneration we have to so I think we've now got to a point where it's so critical. We've got to think, can we turn industry from um, exploitation and and pillaging of the resource of the world to starting to regenerate, repair and recover? So I think we'll we'll see that Green New Deal type thing in some shape or form. uh, And Mm. I think the future has to be about that. And then as a consequence, I think we'll see technology as a utility, not a tool. So I think we might start to see digital connectivity um, and whether it's the breakup of the titans or or what i don't know but i think it will become more utility than tool so that'll be an interesting evolution and then the other evolution i think that that creates is an evolution in education because i think the pandemic has proven just how difficult it is to disperse the current model so we've got to have a different way to educate and i think we'll start to see a little bit more of the seven generation philosophy of the Iroquois nation that what we do now has an impact in seven generations so rather than you know pillaging for industrial profit we will start thinking about what we're doing and the actions we're taking long way down the line and that will almost become like our artistic philosophy on life so yeah I I think mindsets models and just generally the whole nature of what we call work and life I think are in a sense of flux at the moment and could be reassembled quite differently by the time we get to say 2030 2035 that's such an exciting prospect (laughs) (laughs) i hope so and if you had one thing that was absolutely vital to the long-term success of a business what would you what would you suggest it is uh right so i I, i'll use the word and and i might need to explain it a little bit but but um virtuousness Mm. um the the more virtuous an organization is the more likely it will last the term so 
by that I mean ethical, good, and all those kinds of things. But it has to show its virtuousness um, in everything it does. So, um, you know, it's pricing, it's distribution of profits, it's looking after employees, it's giving back to the community, it's about planetary regeneration. So I think there are a number of different elements to being virtuous as an organisation. But to me, that's the long-term success of it. How virtuous are you Mm. will determine how successful you will end up being. So, yeah, that's the one thing I think is key. Wonderful. And on a personal level, what kind of world do you want to build? Uh, wow, what a lovely question. So um, so I, I do subscribe to that whole regenerative concept, So, um, but that isn't just about planetary repair and stuff, but, but the fact that we can regenerate communities, individuals, our society, I think there's something about using what we've learned to then put back in to create better that somebody else learns that better and makes it better themselves. So this really kind of um, repeatable cycle of regeneration, I think, is is what I would like to get involved in. So I, I, I would like to impact on education, work, society, community, planet, because I think it's in its most fragile state since uh, living memory. So therefore, we mm-hmm. all owe it to do a bit of regeneration, not just um, environmentally, but, but in everything that sits on that Mm, wonderful and if you were to suggest maybe one thing that we can do to help us get there what comes to mind uh, so, so I think if I go back to the values and principles thing you were talking about earlier on, mm. I think understanding what your values and principles are is absolutely the first part of that process. And we don't spend enough time doing that individually. So we almost need an individual manifesto to ourselves. And that might include that you become like an individual version of the Paris Agreement. Mm. And then that manifests itself in where you put your effort, energy and attention to either work with um, lobby against or fight for uh, and I think that's that's what we need to do so values and principles of us that we can then go now where does that help me direct my energy and focus to work with fight against and stand for and if you're listening to this either in your personal capacity or representing a business uh, that actually lends itself very beautifully that last answer to a project that I've been working on which comes out with the launch of the book which is called the values map And you can check it out at thevaluesmap.com and it helps you to map out based on a set of higher order and lower order values and a set of questions where your values lie, what that means for you as an individual, what that means in terms of how you are in relationship with yourself and with others and with business and what you can do in terms of how to use your values to create a business that's in alignment with those to help you achieve certain desired outcomes that feel as you would say, very virtuous. <laughs> and I'll add to that, Natalie, that I didn't know that was the case. So I, I totally led you into that without knowing. I know. I wasn't even going to add it in and I just kind of thought, oh, I haven't plugged Ooh, this yet. I there's need to definitely a kind of synergy there then. Good. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I'd like my guests to have the last the last words. So um, is there anything you'd like to end this conversation with? I guess the Margaret Mead quote about a small group of people changing something always comes to mind but I suppose the other one the other quote I really love is um, the Howard Thurman quote which is don't ask what the world needs ask what brings you to life and go and do that because what the world needs is more people who've come to life so again kind of in keeping with our final comment but yeah that Howard Thurman quote what brings you to life just keep that in mind Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. To find out more about today's guest and the themes we explored, please visit the show notes page at natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. If you've enjoyed the series, please do share it with your friends and give it a rating or review. And for more insights and insider tips, you can join my newsletter as well. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.